<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you, baby, that brown liquor make my heart go quicker. Welcome to the Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Song, a podcast dedicated to turning you on to the good stuff, a gathering place for the many kindred spirits I am grateful to call friends. Musicians, writers, artists, chefs, cocktail wizards, and wine geeks, all members of the Leisure Class. You know, I talk a lot about kindred spirits. Yeah, that's right. People who are connected by shared passions and perspectives and experiences. It's a bond that endures, independent of time spent together or distance. You know that feeling. You haven't talked to or seen a particular person for a while, but when you do, you both just pick back up where you left off. Like no time has passed, no distance exists. It's like you saw them yesterday. You know, in our lives, there are concentric circles of relationships. On the outside, there are acquaintances, people we know, maybe we've met in social situations or work with. There are friends of friends, friends of friends of friends. And it's friends in quotation marks on social media, maybe. And most of these people remain on the periphery of our lives. You know, the interactions are kind of rare or they're just really casual. How you doing? How's it going? Good to see you. Hope everything's cool. And then we got friends, people we know and like and want to hang out with and invite to gatherings and parties and spend our part of our lives with. And then the next circle down are our really good friends, real friends. People in our lives we not only enjoy spending time with, but actually need to spend time together. People we can depend on and they can depend on us. People we share the good times and the bad and support each other through it all. People who make our life better because they are in it. Now, kindred spirits, they kind of exist in every circle. But that's my inner circle. People that I've met for the first time and had an instant connection to. A recognition that happens in a flash. A smile comes across your face and a voice in your head says, yeah, I know you. I know you. Kindred spirits recognize each other the same way vampires or aliens who walk among us recognize their own. Yes, you are one of us. I spent my sophomore, junior, and senior years of high school in three different schools in three different states. That was a tough transition to make at that age. You know, you get uprooted, you're leaving friends behind. And in my case, I never saw those people again. You get yanked out of one world, dropped into a strange one, usually in the summer with no school going on, where you kind of get integrated into life in a new place. 
I usually had two to three months of being adrift in a foreign land. So it became a search for the other vampires and aliens. Where would I find my people? The kindred spirits and new friends who shared the same passions I had. And at that time, there was only one place, really. And that was the record store. Which in most cases also sold musical instruments. Because most of the places I lived were small towns. Because music was the tie that binds. I would hang out just about every day in the store, flipping through the bins, talking to the sales dude, who more often than not was a musician. And before long, I got connected to the local musicians and the bands and my people. I'm not sure if it was the experience of forever being the new kid, being forced to make new friends, or whether it was some drive to fill a need to seek out kindred spirits in order to forge deeper connections because all those previous connections had been broken by moving so often. But I became very comfortable with meeting people, trusting my vampire senses, and knowing when I had met one of mine. This is something that I've carried throughout my entire life, through an incredible nomadic and often chaotic journey. I have been really fortunate in that no matter where I've lived for any length of time now, I have met my people. And I've taken great joy in connecting these people to other kindred spirits across the country. I don't question the why or how any longer. I just know them when I see them. When I met my guest today, he was working in the Hollywood Guitar Center store. And this was at a time post-straits with my touring days behind me as I focused on raising my twin daughters. I was the buyer of guitars for Guitar Center, which meant I was responsible for deciding which guitar and amp lines were brought into the chain. And because the corporate headquarters was in North Los Angeles, I would drop into the flagship Hollywood store to get feedback from the sales crew and check out what was going on and see what the vibe was on new gear, what we might bring in, what we should get rid of. Now, I worked in music stores from the time I was old enough to have a job. I basically took my pay in record albums. You know, musicians work in music stores. We get hired for our knowledge about the gear and the bands and the records. But we work there because of our passion for music. And to be as close as possible to the things that fuel that passion while we chase our rock star dreams. And there is a camaraderie that musicians working in retail share. A shared passion, but also a shared struggle. I'm just doing this until my band gets signed to a record deal. And for some, it happens. I mean, my time in Dire Straits started because I was working in a guitar store. When I was introduced to my guest today, Keith Nelson, and shook hands with him for the first time, I knew he was a vampire too. Not only because of his being a guitarist in a band working retail like I had, or learning that the Stones were also his favorite band and we both dug the Allman Brothers, but there was something else. We became good friends, and I discovered we were both from western Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. Keith grew up in Beaver Falls, home of the football great Joe Namath, and me, I grew up in Indiana, Pennsylvania, hometown of the great actor Jimmy Stewart. 
These towns are 75 miles apart. And although we are separated by 15 years, anyone who knows that area of Pennsylvania can tell you nothing much has changed in the far north Appalachia. It is a blue-collar area that even in my time was hit hard by the decline of steel and coal production, but it does fuel the motivation of us kids of any artistic bent. Keith is best known as the founder, guitarist, songwriter, and producer of the highly successful band Buck Cherry. When we come back, my guest and kindred spirit, Keith Nelson, joins us. Don't go away. Buck Cherry is a hardcore rock and roll band influenced by ACDC, The Stones, and fueled by my buddy Keith's signature guitar riffs. The two-time Grammy-nominated band had albums that he played on, wrote songs for, and in the latter part of their career, produced all their records. Since leaving the band in 2017, he has focused on production and songwriting. His collaborations include Alice Cooper, Blackberry Smoke, My Chemical Romance, and Velvet Revolver, along with new projects that he's produced by Palisades, The Dose, The Wild, and Ricky Warwick. Keith is a true keeper of the flame, carrying on the tradition of guitar-based rock and roll, and he is a wizard at getting great guitar tones in the studio. Great dude all around. Welcome to the Leisure Class, Keith. Thanks for joining us. Man, thanks for having me, Jack. Way too long since we've had a conversation. It's like we never left. (laughs) It's true. Keith and I both grew up in western Pennsylvania, 75 miles apart from there. I grew up in Indiana, Pennsylvania. He grew up in Beaver Falls, which is where Joe Namath is from. It is, a lot of people don't really know Pennsylvania. They think about Pittsburgh and they think about Philadelphia. And this sort of big in-between is Pennsylvania. The influence of growing up in that environment and being fairly detached from any real center of music at the time. Man, I don't even know where to start. I could talk for 40 minutes on that. So let me just say this. My first listening experiences were my father's record collection. For as much of a redneck, backwoods, western Pennsylvania guy that he was, there was James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, Merle Haggard, David Allen Coe, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. It was this mixture of all this stuff. To me, it was genreless. It was just my dad's records. And he listened to country music radio like AM radio in the garage when he was doing stuff. And that's what I heard. And then we were lucky enough to have a really cool rock station uh, coming out of Pittsburgh called WDVE. And that was what we would probably refer to as classic rock. But this is the late seventies, early eighties. It was rock. It was rock music. So that was the beacon. It was the radio. It was my dad's record collection. I always had a sense of not fitting in. Always. And it didn't really, I found out years later, it didn't matter if I was in Los Angeles or Pennsylvania. Um, that was going to, it's going to follow me wherever I go until I got my mind and my spirit together. But I always felt like I didn't fit in. And being back there, I always felt like there was something more and I wasn't seeing it. No one was telling me. So the wanderlust started pretty early. There was an equal amount of fear of that because. When I moved to California, my family said to me, how long are you going for? Like, it was like a trip. And to me, it was not really like a trip. It was a, it was, I am going to go figure this out. So 
that's a pretty big deal. Um, I would not recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's turned out pretty well, man. But well, it has. But you know, when I think about the just the sheer, the just the the nerve born out of being naive and doing that was crazy. My daughter, I have a daughter who's about to graduate from college, and she wants to go to New York City, and it petrifies me because sure. I'm like, "What are you doing? Where are you going? For how long?" <laughs> So I don't know. Somehow it seemed like there was something more out there. I didn't know what it was, but I had to go find out what it was. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, growing up in a, in a small town, small town area, right, what you're looking around at is sort of a trap. My family, coal miners, dairy farmers, my cousins, my dad, you know, auto mechanics. It's like looking around at all that and thinking, even as a kid, it's like, this, this is what, this is it. To me now, from my perspective, maybe at the time I felt that, but now looking back, I don't know if I would call it trapped. I would just think, you know, everyone's making their own happiness. Some people stay there, never leave, and are completely content. Some people stay there, never leave, and are miserable and and die with that struggle and, and try to figure out what's going to make them happy. I left and realized later on that it didn't matter where I physically took my body, I was taking my head with me wherever I went, and my happiness was not about the city that I was living in. And my content was not about that. It was about what was going on here between my ears. Right. So. Well, no matter where you go, there you are, right? So that's, that's right. the thing. You split Western Pennsylvania, but you've, you finished college, right? So you went to college to do law and criminology? So I went to a four-year university in the middle of Pennsylvania called Indiana University of Pennsylvania. I paid my own way through school because um, my parents, uh, my, my family split when I was about 15, and it was kind of a little bit of a wreck, and there was nobody there to go, here, buddy, go, go to college. So I paid my own way through with loans and working and really wanted to quit about halfway through, but realized that I was going to be in debt when I got out. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to have the debt with nothing to show for it. So I stuck it out, playing pick, playing in pickup bands. I just transitioned from uh, playing the drums my entire life, playing guitar. Graduated with a degree in criminology. I don't mean to laugh. I don't I don't, you, <laughs> you know. know. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, okay, why? Tell me about, uh, tell me about why that course in, as opposed to like liberal arts or, you know, any anything down that more artistic maybe path yeah i it didn't seem like that was in the um i don't know like there was nobody there telling me that that was a possibility for me got it i was very interested in crime true crime and all that stuff uh, detective work i still watch detective shows and read novels and books about it to this day um i'm fascinated by it it seemed interesting and i didn't have to do a lot of math because I did not <laughs> math. Because right. I only had algebra in high school. I didn't have calculus or any of the other stuff that people have to take. And I was petrified of doing all that math. So I was into science, and that's kind of with the prerequisites for that degree. And it seemed like that was the path, and that's the point. <laughs> Knowing you and, and watching your career and all the things that you went through with the band, on and on. I mean, you handled so much of the business. You approached playing in a band in the smartest way I've ever seen anybody do it. Well, not initially. Okay. Initially, I was like, where's the chicks? Let's rock and roll. Of course. And then 
we got signed to a major record deal, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on videos. My guitar tech bought a house after the first tour. I had no money. The band breaks up and I'm, and I'm going, what happened? How this whole thing was in motion. There's business managers and, and everyone's making money. And the band was eating off of the deli tray, surviving on per diem. And I'm like, how does this work like this? Like, and then it dawned on me that we were just the gristle in the machine that the machine was going to keep going with or without us. And I watched it go away the first time and people step over the corpse and get onto the next one. And you're not supposed to last longer than two records. And then if you're one of the rare bands or artists that stick around after their sophomore mm-hmm. record, that's kind of a big deal. But the majority of, of artists don't last that long. Right. So the band broke up and I resigned myself to not being in a band anymore not ever doing that again. Okay. I was intent. I had started a rental business. I was working for a few record producers. I had started to learn more about making records. That's what I really thought I wanted to do. Had completely given up the, the idea of, of ever touring again. Josh and I started talking again and we put the band back together. I thought, you know what? I have to do this smarter this time. And when I say smarter, I mean, I got to educate myself on the business so I can maximize this opportunity for myself and the guys in the band. And I can set us all up to win and make better business decisions. Somewhere early on, someone told me, never make artistic decisions based on finance. And that stuck with me. And I truly tried to use that as one of the North stars that I followed all the way through it. Make sure that creative decisions are creative decisions that doesn't mean you make bad financial decisions. That means make sure you're doing the art for the art, mm-hmm. respect it. And then when it comes to business, make the best deal you can at every, at every turn, ask the questions, educate yourself. Because what I found was a lot of the people that were in the business doing the business weren't actually that smart. <laughs> now there are some smart people out there, yes. but music business is the D students. They couldn't sell cars and they couldn't become doctors so they landed in the music business somehow. And then they're negotiating contracts and coming up with deal points. And then I, I, I didn't really, I just thought, I, I, not that I thought that I was smarter than them. I just thought this job isn't that hard, actually. To take that on. In any conversation I've had with younger musicians, like throughout my career afterwards, you know, get asked to go speak to people or whatever. Like the, and they say, what, what advice do you give to, you know, young artists you know, in the music business, and I'm like, learn the business, learn the business, learn where the money goes, where it comes from, what the songwriting stuff, how that all works. Because otherwise, you know, you're just thinking that it all comes out of the air. Checks come, checks go. And then you find out that like all those parties and all those limos and all that, all that food and all that stuff came out of your budget and the record yeah. company's charging you for all that shit. Early on, we, we made our first record, and the uh, the drum rental guy showed up, and he dropped off six drum kits. We used the drum kit for, to make the record. We're in there for three weeks. And then later on, you know, I asked to see the accounting statement when we first got our first accounting statement. And people were offended that I asked to see it. And I'm like, well, I want to see where our money goes. I want to see how unrecouped I am to my record label. And then I started going through these pages and I had to learn how to read an accounting statement. I would ask people, how do I read this? What does this mean? And they would get a little offended, like, it, 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 kid, just shut up. <laughs> right, right. Because oh, that's what they want, right? Yeah. 
this is the way it's always been done. Don't you worry about it. I'm like, well, what does perpetuity mean? What does, you know, recoupable mean? I didn't know what any of these terms meant is in relation to a record deal. Then I found out that I looked at the record budget and I was charged, my band was charged for three weeks for six drum kits. So this guy charged us $6,500 or whatever it was. And I was like, man, that came out of my pocket because someone didn't say, we're only using this, take that away. It's like paying attention to the details. Mm-hmm. And the dude that dropped off the drums, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. It's, so it's like this whole this whole thing was going on there. It's just like little lessons like that along the way. That's why I started buying studio gears because I didn't want to have to rent things from people. And I wanted to be on an island where I could do music on my own terms whenever I wanted to without anybody telling me that it was okay. Because back then, before the advent of the laptop and, and software, you had to go find a studio, pay them in full before you could leave with your tape. Yes. Like a boogie night skit. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, and I, I didn't want to be beholden to anyone. So part of that whole thing was just educating myself on it and learning how, how the machine ran. In watching you put together this like, you know, third chapter, I guess, if we want to call it that, where, you know, where you're at now, where you're, in control of of the music you're producing you're songwriting you're playing guitar you're creating great rock and roll and it's all sort of your your hands are around it all and you can do it at a level that um most i'll tell you man most musicians that i've come across just don't know that i don't know it that was one definitely one shortcoming that i had in going into it was like oh join a band and be Keith Richards to somebody's Mick Jagger and everything's going to be groovy, but it doesn't happen that way. I I often think that we were, we weren't sold a a false bill of goods, but man, we really bought into the dream and they sold it so well. (laughs) You know, when you see that famous picture of Keith passed out in the backstage at um, Madison square garden, it's like what you don't see is someone had to pick him up, put him on his private plane so that he could do it again. Yep. And last time I looked, there wasn't anybody picking me up looking out for my ass. Got it. I kind of look out for my own. Right on. So let's talk about the music a little bit. So give me five. Give me five influences and five of your inspirations. Oh, man. Well, I'm, I'm trying to think of it chronologically because there was a couple pivotal moments in time when I heard things and it was like it was like the clouds coming open and you're going to laugh at some of them because you're just going to laugh at some of them okay. when I t- kiss destroyer has such a profound impact on me you're going to be like those knuckleheads but I'm telling you being like 10 years old okay hearing that sound come out of the speaker it was like aliens man I was well. like whoa what's <laughs> that it was it was amazing to me um Back in Black by ACDC was the first record that I ever had where I put the record on and I heard the sound and I consciously had the thought of, how do they do that? And I want to do that. Okay. I didn't know what that meant. Right. But I heard that church bell Mm. and then that riff starts and I was like, that's the most evil shit I've ever heard. How do they do that? Like, I don't (laughs) know how that you know how that works so there's two how old were you uh, i know the house that i was in i know my father still lived with us so 
that was before I was 15 years old. Okay. I had to have 12, 13 years old. That record came out in what, 1983? Like the radio was so big to me back then. The first time I saw John Hammond Jr., I saw him playing slide guitar, singing, didn't sound like an older white guy singing it, playing harmonica. And I was like, what's going on there? And so that led me down the path of finding slide guitar. And then when I found that, all that rock and roll that I was listening to, the Almond Brothers, Led Zeppelin, ACDC, it all made sense. Like, oh, this all came from that. But it wasn't until I saw him doing that that I kind of did the history lesson and connected the dots for all that, which led me down the path of playing slide guitar in a time when people were singing Sweet Cherry Pie and everyone was like, every dude was like 80 pounds with really long hair. They were all pretty. I was built like a football player because I played football and I liked, <laughs> I liked, you know, as pretty as I would get would be like Aerosmith. That's as pretty as I wanted the dudes in my band to be. So inspirations. Probably my biggest inspiration in the, and I know you can relate to this, is my children. Because becoming a father and taking on that responsibility, you know, I think every person that has a kid says, I want to do it better than my parents, but I really want to do it better than my parents. Maybe this makes me like super sentimental, but I, I consciously have the thought at least once or twice a week of looking at my kids and thinking about how my parents raised me and thinking, what the f*** were they thinking? Well, they weren't. They weren't. That's the thing. My children inspire me to be a better human, more patient, more forgiving. Uh, I don't always get it right. I know I don't. I ruffle, I step on people's toes all the time, but that's an inspiration for me is to um, leave something a little bit better and, and kind of raise humans that aren't assholes. You know? Beautiful, man. Yeah. Musically speaking, you know, um, I kind of have a few hats there. Like as a guitar player, I love, you know, I love Keith Richards for, the same reason that I love Eddie Van Halen. And okay. it's not because of their lead guitar playing right. because they know how to make a band sound great. Right. And they know how to boogie. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eddie boogies. Absolutely, man. And, and Keith boogies. And I don't care what he does past the fifth fret. He just, he boogies. Yep. And that's why I love those guys. So they're inspirations to me and they they couldn't sound more different. I think one of the most overlooked things of of Eddie's playing is he's a fa- um, like amazing, fantastic rhythm guitar player. It's a song within a song. Yeah, I mean it, he, the way it swings, the way it locks in, you know, with his brother obviously playing for years together and all that stuff. But you take you could take all those stuff away from that and have his track, and the same with Keith in my mind, and just isolate that track. And you can hear everything else that's supposed to go around it, right? It's just like, here it is. And all that space is going to get filled up by the right stuff because they got the right players. That's right. That's right. And, and, and so, um, and I hadn't really thought of it in those terms until it was coming out of my mouth telling you that. But that's okay. really the truth. That's, I love them for the same reason. Yeah. Um, and they're in completely different sure. neighborhoods. Um you know, lately, um, in the past few years since I've consciously made the decision to, to transition from guy in a band to 
who produces records every two years to full-time producing and writing, you know, um, the craft of songwriting and great songwriters, and I don't care what genre it is, is jaw-dropping to me. And I've worked with some amazingly talented people that could pick up a Chinese menu and start singing it. And you'd be like, Egg Fu Young is a hit. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, and, and women, too. Um, I've worked with some amazingly talented people. So that, to me, is something that I'm chasing the way I used to chase guitar licks and cool riffs. Got it. Guitar playing, it's like, you know, there's just the same four or five records that I put on and just go, I'll never be that good, but I'm going to try. You know, mm-hmm. um, the Allman Brothers live record to me, just continually, I'm always finding something new in that record that I'm just like, oh, oh, see, I'm not one of those guys that can tell. I'm going to admit this. It's, it's shameful. I can't. Sometimes I can't tell if it's Dickie or Dwayne. Oh, yeah, I'm with and you. I have to call Charlie Starr and say, hey, who's playing that lick? Because, you know, <laughs> right. The Layla record, early ZZ Top. Mm-hmm. Billy's so funky. Yeah, so inside of inside of he painted himself in a corner and then got so funky in that corner it's like wow okay no rhythm guitar player and a basic 12 bar how far can we take this and man did he take it somewhere yeah absolutely Absolutely. so so i was just listening to some unreleased free tracks the other day live at some gig i never even heard of before and i had to call up a friend and go this is the most ferocious performance i've ever heard of this band how did i miss this i'm 53 years old this recording's got to be almost 60 years old right how did this happen this is insane so i'm always finding that stuff and i'm still a huge fan of music i still love to listen to music uh not on the way home from the studio i listen to sports radio because my ears just need a break right but i love listening to music i got a turntable and a and a power amp with some tubes in it, and I sit down and I have a romantic experience in my right. living room. Wanted to ask you, all these people that you opened for, played with, have known all of this time, is there one artist that you wish you could have played with, written songs with, recorded? I mean, yeah, of course. It's the, it's Keith and Mick. Okay. I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. Okay. I figured that that would be the answer, but I thought maybe you would go with Petty. Petty was certainly more realistic, probably, because I know where his house is on PCH. Right. And drive past there and look at the gate and see if it was open. <laughs> um, and I'm such a huge nerd boy fan. I saw the second to the last show at the Bowl. Um, I would go by Norm's Rare Guitars just to see if Tom was in there that day. Out, you know, no. ultimately, it's like, the stones are it man and these stones have been it for forever they yep. just have true enough all right yeah. brother thank you brother i love you love you too well that's it for this episode of the leisure class friends i really appreciate you joining us today don't forget to subscribe give us a five-star rating and tell your friends all about the leisure class brought to you by newsweek newsweek